But for today, we're going to continue in the series Living Counter. The idea is that there's a prevailing culture around us that's flowing in one direction, and that direction is away from the heart of God and away from biblical truth and values. And if we as people of God are going to uh, stand up for who Jesus is in this world, we're going to find ourselves counter the prevailing culture. We're going to have to stick our feet in the ground, and we're going to have to uh, live in, uh, in uh, integrity with the truth of who God is. And so we've looked at that in a variety of different ways. Uh, Today, I want to start with a couple definitions. Um, And so I'm just going to ask you to breathe deep for a minute. Um, This is not going to be an easy one, but I think it's going to be a really important one. So I want to start with this question. When you hear the term wage or salary, what do you think of? Money, right? A a wage or a salary, an hourly wage or an annual salary is payment that comes from the work that you're doing. So if you do an hour's worth of work, you get an hour's wage. If you do a year's worth of work, you get an annual salary, right? So from the work you do, you're, you're paid for that work that you do. That's a, a wage or a salary. But um, different than that, and I would argue much better than that, uh, if you're an artist or you have an artistic background, you're probably familiar with this term. Uh, there's also royalties, you know about royalties? Royalties are beautiful because you, uh, instead of like a wage where you do work and then you get paid, you work for an hour, you get paid for an hour. With royalties, you do work once and you get paid over and over and over again. It's a beautiful thing, right? Like you, you write a book and then you're done writing the book and you send it off and then you just wait for the money to come in, right? It's beautiful. You write a song and every time the song's played, more money comes in. Now, I, I should be up front. Um, about 10 years ago, I did write a book, and it is on Amazon. You can go on Amazon and buy it if you want. And in January every year, I get a royalty check. And um, that royalty check, honestly, unless I go to McDonald's, will not buy lunch. But um, it doesn't work that way for everybody. There are people who get real royalties. I'm just not that person. What I get is, is really, really small. Um, so you, you have a wage where you do work and you get compensated for that work. You have royalties where you do work once and you get compensated in an ongoing way for that work. And I thought, is there anything better than royalties? Royalties is like, that's like the top, right? Well, it's not because there's another word that is even better than that. And that word is privilege. Privilege You don't have to do anything, and you still get benefit. Without any work, without anything done on our behalf, we gain benefit. Now, some of you are already starting to breathe heavy. Relax. It's going to be okay. Uh, Just take a deep breath. Um, I want to say two things going into this. The first one is that... um, I'm, I'm going to read the Bible today, okay? So, um, so some of you are already tense. Um, just breathe. I, I, will make a few, uh, I will make probably all of you angry at some point in time in the next half hour. But it's okay. We're going to wrap it up, and it's going to be okay. So every, everybody just relax. Whatever side you're on, it's, it's going to be fine. The other thing I want to say is um, what is um, probably very evident to you. I know I have felt it very strongly this week. Um, I'm a middle-aged, well-educated white man talking about privilege, which is ironic at best. Over the last several hundred years in America, there is no one who is the recipient of more privilege than a person like me. And so when I say that, there's a couple things that I think are important for you to hear. The first one is, if you were hearing this from a woman, if you were hearing this from an ethnic minority, you would likely hear a different perspective, and that would be a really good and important perspective. And I probably have some really significant blind spots in the process. And so I just want to say that up front. The other thing I want to say is, 
this is still true. And what we're going to be talking about is the biblical truth around privilege. Because here's the thing. Uh, there are no good coherent arguments that say privilege doesn't exist. Privilege does exist. The question is, what, what are we going to do with it? Privilege is a real thing. Like my friend Brian Wade over there, I, I'm a um, tall and bald and um, a very white man. So when I walk into a place, I carry myself a certain way and I'm seen a certain way. When I walk into that same place with my friend Brian, who is a couple inches taller than me um, and way better looking than me, um, but also not white, he is seen a different way. That's just the way it works. And that's, that's something that is real and true, and it's not necessarily something that we need to back away from. It's just something that's true. And so because it's true, the question is, what do the scriptures say about it? What does Jesus call us to? How do we live into that in a way that doesn't back away from it, but recognizes the truth? I believe the scriptures are going to tell us that sacrifice must be greater than privilege. Sacrifice must be greater than privilege. And you're going to see that if you listen to what is a very familiar passage at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2. Uh, one that you've probably heard a bunch. Listen to it through that lens of sacrifice is greater than privilege. Bill's going to come and read for us Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you, Bill. So here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to start by looking at the nature of privilege itself. 
What's, uh, what, what are we talking about? And then we're going to look in the text at two uh, very clear things that I believe Paul lays out for us. We're, the, the call that we have to redirect privilege and the call that we have to embrace sacrifice. So we're going to look first at the nature of privilege, redirecting privilege, and ultimately uh, embracing sacrifice. So let's start with the definition. Um, I looked at about four dozen definitions this week. I was going to bore you with all of them. They're fascinating and they're all across the board, but I'm not going to do that. We're going to stay uh, really clear because uh, I want to uh, I, I try to get into what the text says. And so we're going to go with Oxford. Oxford's dictionary, I'm sure they know what they're talking about. Uh, this is a straight kind of down the middle definition. Oxford dictionary says this, privilege is a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to to a particular person or group. Pretty straightforward. It's a privilege, right, advantage, or immunity granted to someone or a group of someones. Now, important to see within this is that privilege can be earned. So, for instance, if you have gone to a four-year college and you have a four-year college degree, there are certain jobs that you have the privilege to apply for that people who do not have a four-year college degree do not have the privilege of applying for. I'm very thankful that uh, Kevin has the privilege of working in an emergency room, and I do not have that privilege, and so are the people that I would be working on, right? Because I have no idea what I'm talking about. And, and so there, there are privileges that are earned, but there are also privileges that just are because of how we're born, because of who we are. As I talked about, Brian and I walking into a store are seen differently, and there's a measure of privilege that's a part of that. The question is not whether there's privilege. The question is, what do we do with privilege? And when privilege uh, is seen, the, the world, uh, shockingly, tends to be a bit polarized. We tend to look at privilege in one of two ways. One of those ways says privilege, anywhere it exists, means that there's an injustice being committed. So if there's privilege, that means those who do not have privilege do not have the same rights as the people who do have privilege. So in that way of looking, privilege equals rights, okay? So privilege and rights together is one way of looking at privilege. So when privilege and rights are together, what you see is this, uh, this concept that you've probably heard called uh, systemic injustice, where privilege over a period of time, over generations, over decades, one lands on another, and there are groups of people who have privileges, rights, and other people who do not have privileges and rights. And the way to engage that is to uh, root out that privilege and level the playing field. So uh, those who would see privilege as equal to rights might use an illustration like this. This is an illustration I saw this week. I thought it was a really helpful one. Um, say you love to play Monopoly, and a group of friends have decided to play a game of Monopoly, and you're not allowed to play. For the first hour, they play, and they just play a game of Monopoly, and you have to sit on the side and watch. And then an hour in, you're invited to play Monopoly with them. And so... You jump in, you're excited because you want to play the game, you like Monopoly, but all of the properties are already taken, and they all have houses and hotels on them, and your whole goal is to get around the board and pass go to collect $200, right? That's all you want. You just need, I, I just want to get to $200. But what should be a joyful time around the board is fraught with fear, right? Because if you land on the wrong thing, 
that thing is going to take everything that you have. And so as you go from place to place, uh, your, your, your joy of the game is drained out. And instead, what you feel is this fear of, oh my goodness, if I take a wrong step, everything is going to go sideways. It's going to be bad. And, and w- what ultimately happens as you journey around the board once or twice or three times is you, you lose everything that you have and you recognize that honestly, in this game, the best place for you is jail, Right? Like, you just need, need to go to jail. Now, that may feel like an overstatement to you, but there are many who would say, that's a great definition of privilege. That's what privilege looks like. That's one group of people. There's another group of people who would look at privilege another way, and they would say, privilege is not about trying to equalize rights, but privilege is instead taking what we've been given and stepping into responsibility. For these people, privilege doesn't equal rights, privilege equals responsibility. It becomes incumbent upon us to step into what we have, regardless of, uh, of who we are and where we come from. So a guy named Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell um, went, went to Harvard as an economist, uh, economics major, uh, graduated at the top of his class in Harvard, ended up going to uh, Co- Columbia, getting his master's degree, going to the University of Chicago get to, to get his doctorate, and now he is part of the Hoover Institute in Stanford uh, and, and serving there. If you're not familiar with American higher education, Harvard to Columbia to University of Chicago to Stanford's pretty good, all right? So that's, that's pretty, pretty top-notch. And Thomas Sowell is also an African-American. And he has written about what he calls the effects of victimology as it relates to privilege. Listen to just a little bit of what he says. If we wanted to be serious about evidence, we might compare where blacks stood 100 years after the end of slavery with where they stood 30 years after the liberal welfare state. In other words, we could compare hard evidence on the legacy of slavery with hard evidence on the legacy of liberals. Despite the grand myth that black economic progress began or accelerated with the passage of the civil rights laws and war on poverty programs of the 60s, the cold fact is that the poverty rate among blacks fell from 87% in 1940 to 47% by 1960. This was before any of those programs began. Over the next 20 years, the poverty rate among blacks fell another 18 points compared to the 40% drop in the previous 20 years. Ending the Jim Crow laws was a landmark achievement, but despite the great proliferation of black political and other leaders that resulted from the laws and policies of the 60s, nothing comparable happened economically. And there were serious retrogressions socially. The murder rate among blacks in 1960 was one half of what it became 20 years later after the legacy of liberals' law enforcement policies. Public housing projects in the first half of the 20th century were clean, safe places where people slept outside on hot summer nights when they were too poor to afford air conditioning. That was before admission standards for public housing process were lowered or abandoned in the euphoria of liberal non-judgmental notions. And it was before the toxic message of victimhood was spread by liberals. If we're going to go by the evidence of social, re- social retrogression, liberals have wreaked more havoc on blacks than the supposed legacy of slavery they talk about. Liberals should heed the title of Jason Riley's insightful book, Please Stop Helping Us. Whew. Right? So there are two very different sides. One side says rights need to be held out, privilege needs to be rooted out to level the playing field. The other side says, if I can just summarize, go to high school, work hard, don't get pregnant out of wedlock, you'll be okay. You can be successful in America no matter who you are if you just work hard enough at it. Privilege equals responsibility. Which one is it? 
These seem to be incompatible ways of looking at the world. Well, the, the difficult and nuanced answer is both of them are right to some degree, and both of them have massive holes. But the vitally important thing that I need you to hear is that Jesus is deeply dissatisfied with both of them. Neither of them line up with the, with the truth of the scriptures. Why? Well, because culture is not monolithic. Let's start there. Um, the, within the broader culture, there are always microcultures. And so there are always places where those who are privileged in one place are not privileged in another place. Let me give you an example. We just got done with the Olympics. Um, let's, let's imagine Andy Howell and I are walking into Olympic competition, and we're going to be picked up by Team USA with, uh, with on that, within that team, they just had somebody drop out and they need us. And so Andy and I walk into the basketball gym and uh, we are, uh, Andy, stand all the way up just in case people don't know who you are. No, not on the stool. Okay, there we go. Awesome. Yeah, there you go. So Andy and I walk into the basketball gym. They've never seen us play basketball before. Who are they going to pick, right? Uh, like, they, I, they don't know if I know how to play basketball, but I got a foot and a half on the dude, Right? They're like, whatever, because I have privilege, right? But if the same two of us walk into the gymnastics arena and Team USA needs to pick up a gymnast, they look at me and they're like, when he grabs the high bar, his feet touch the ground. Like, that doesn't work. And they look at Andy, he's like, that dude's got muscle. That other guy's just got fat. Like, what's going on? They pick Andy immediately, right? Andy may not be able to do anything gymnastically, but in the microculture of gymnasts, he has privilege. In the microculture of basketball players, I have privilege. Michael Phelps, you've probably heard of him. Uh, he, he did some swimming back in the day. Um, people have looked at Michael Phelps and said, he's worked incredibly hard, and he has, for all of these gold medals. But there's some other stuff about Michael Phelps. I don't know if you've researched this. Um, he's freakish. Like, his, his torso is, like, twice as long as a normal human. Like, he's my height, a little bit taller than me, and his legs are, like, six inches shorter than me. Like, he, he, he's, like, built strange, right? All of his joints are double-jointed, and so when he comes through the water, he gets more torque with his arm because it bends in freakishly unhuman ways. His, his ankles have 15% more flex than a normal human's ankles. His, lungs, his lung capacity is so much higher because his chest is so big because he has this huge torso and he has no drag from his legs because he's got these like puny little legs that don't like do anything, right? Which me, all that to say, if I get in the pool and I train, just like Michael Phelps, and I eat that 12,000-calorie-a-day diet, which sounds really good most of the time. Anyway, uh, if, I, if I do all that stuff and I train just like him, I will never butterfly as fast as Michael Phelps. It's just never going to happen. Why? Because he has privilege. God-given privilege, he's created differently than I am. Privilege is not as simple as a simple socioeconomic structure. Privilege takes all kinds of different forms in all kinds of different places. The question is, what do we do with it? How do we receive it? And that's where I think Paul in Philippians 2 gives us a beautiful model. So I, I want to start with the second half of Philippians 2, and I just want to read uh, one half of a verse for you. This is in verse 5. Um, oh, sorry, ver verse 6. Uh, 
Paul is talking about Jesus himself, and he says this about Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, so just stop. Jesus came on earth as a human, but was also God. So we believe that Jesus was fully man and fully God. So if you walk in here today and you got a list of stuff, like, Look at my, I got bank accounts, I got investments, I got education, I have power, I have accomplishments, I've done all of these things, and I am, I, I am, like, whatever, whatever you would list to your credit, whatever your resume would have, if we would put yours beside Jesus, God wins out, right? Like, like, you could be like, yeah, I went to a really good school and I have a really good position, I have a lot of money, and he's like, yeah, but I'm God. That pretty much ends the conversation, right? So, so in terms of privilege, Jesus is the most privileged human being to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus has more privilege than any of us could ever imagine having. Now, you might say, yeah, but he was, he was born in poverty, and there were, there were questionable circumstances, and so he was, he was ostracized around his birth, and he was part of an ethnic minority that was impressed, oppressed by a, a larger power. But because he was God, he chose all of that stuff, Right? And because he was God, he could at any point in time, should he choose, uh, change all of those things. So in terms of privilege, there is no one ever more privileged than Jesus himself. So what's he do with it? Well, he doesn't deny his privilege. And he doesn't try to equalize his privilege. He doesn't try to move everybody up to him. And he doesn't try to pretend that he's just like everybody else. Instead, what Paul tells us is that he redirects the privilege that he has. How does he do it? Well, he starts with new math. Um, I don't know if you knew that Jesus did new math, but that's a kind of a paraphrase. Uh, that's in, uh, in verse 6. It says, though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. I don't know about how you count, but when I have privilege, I like to count that privilege as part of me, right? So whatever that thing is, if I have an advantage, I want to keep hold of that advantage. Jesus doesn't count that way. Jesus, in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So what's that mean? Well, it means that everything that he had, all of the privilege that he had, he saw as not for him, but for the sake of the people around him. Jesus understood and lived the reality that his life was a conduit of privilege to the world around him. And so any godness within him was used purely for the sake of others. He didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And then it says he emptied himself. That's a, a Greek word, kenosis. There are lots of theologians who have had lots of debates about what that means. We're not going to wade into all of that today. Uh, effectively, what I need you to hear is that Jesus, being in the form of God, emptied himself of that godness, not being less God, but not using that godness in a way that brought him advantage. So, so there's this wild thing when you read through the Gospels. Jesus... Uh, anointed by the Spirit coming out of the baptism in the Jordan, uses the power of God in all kinds of incredible ways, right? Like he, he feeds people who are hungry and he heals people who are sick and he knows things about people that he's able to speak right into their lives. He heals dead people. He stops storms. I mean, incredible stuff. None of it for his benefit only. Always for the benefit of others. 
He emptied himself of godness and instead, through the power of the Spirit, blessed and ministered to the world around him. And then finally, he humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. Jesus, being God, is the only human being ever that coming up to the point of death was able, should he have chosen to, to say, no thanks, I'm not going to die. You don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. When I come to death, I'm going to die. Why? Because as the Bible tells us really clearly, the wages of sin is death. But when Jesus approaches death, he's able to say, no thanks. But he doesn't. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus came and lived the life that the first Adam couldn't live, that you and I can't live, that none of us are capable of living. And then, in the midst of that perfect life, he died the death that you deserved, that I deserve, that that first Adam deserved. And as he died that death on our behalf, he gives us the gift of life. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus takes the privilege that he has as God and he humbles himself to a place where that privilege is used very specifically to bless you and me, to give us life. So the way that Jesus handles privilege is by redirecting it to someone else. The the heart of the gospel flattens the hierarchy of the church. We recognize that we all come broken. That's the heart of what we're journeying through with Jonas right now. That we all come broken and we are all in need of grace. And that takes all kinds of different forms, but it means for sure that none of us sit in judgment over anyone else because we recognize the the need of grace that we have. And it means that we don't cling to our rights, but we release our rights. Do you see that Jesus wasn't coerced Jesus wasn't forced, he wasn't guilted into being the sacrifice. He willingly, in fact, the writer of the Hebrews says, with joy, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I was reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. I've read it a bunch of times, but as we go into the uh, series on community, it's maybe one of the best works out there on community. And I was struck by this passage, particularly in light of the last 18 months. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. One who lives by justification by grace is willing and ready to accept even insults and injuries without protest, taking them from God's punishing and gracious hand. There we go. It is not not a good sign when we can no longer bear to hear this said without immediately retorting that Paul insisted upon his rights as a Roman citizen. And it cracked me up because Bonhoeffer wrote this in the late 30s, and I have read more in the last 18 months about Paul insisting on his rights as a Roman citizen as I have for 45 years of Bible learning up until then. Like, we are so concerned about our rights right now. We're retorting, but Paul insisted upon his rights as a Roman citizen. I don't know if you've read that part of Acts. Paul insisted on his rights as a Roman citizen after he was beaten, Paul insisted on his rights as a Roman citizen only at the point in time where it furthered the gospel. And many times, hundreds of times, he rejected his rights as a Roman citizen in order to further the gospel. 
Paul, who wrote Philippians 2, wrote in Philippians 3, hey, if you can't fully get your arms around what it means to follow Jesus, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul lived this stuff. And yet the part that we like to pull out is he insisted upon his rights as a Roman citizen so that our rights aren't infringed upon. Jesus willingly, not by coercion, not by force, willingly redirected his privilege. But that's only half of Paul's argument. The, the beginning of Paul's argument is fascinating. Um, listen to verses one and two. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and one mind. Paul says this. You and I have a choice with what we are going to do with what we've been given. We have a choice. When, when you read Philippians 2, I want you to hear you're being given a choice. What Paul is saying is, look into the beauty of the love of Jesus for you. Stare into the beauty of the gospel. And as you stare into the beauty of the gospel, I'm calling you to choose to live like that. You have a choice. We don't have to respond in any specific way to our privilege. We're invited to embrace the sacrifice that Jesus has done for us. What Paul says is, when you look at the love of Jesus, you should be compelled by your choice to enter into that kind of life. John Tyson, uh, in his book, Beautiful Resistance, makes this statement. Though we may stand in awe of Jesus doing this on our behalf, it's remarkably hard for those of us raised in the West to follow his example. America is obsessed with winning. We love the corporate charts that go upward and to the right, right? Like, we're, that's, just, that's the way we're wired. Like, we like to see uh, advances. We like to see, I started to follow Jesus and my life got better. I, we like to see, like, as I'm living the way I'm supposed to, God is just blessing me. I have all of this blessing that's poured out upon me. What's fascinating, Henry Nouwen, uh, studying the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus, called the gospel uh, the gospel of downward mobility. You like that? Like, basically what he said is, if you're really following Jesus, um, your chart's not going up and to the right, it's going down and to the right. That, that's the way it works. You should, find you, uh, you should find your life being downwardly mobile as you give yourself away to others. This process of following Jesus is not about amassing comfort. It's not about amassing privilege and goodness and flexibility and all of the, the security that we can have. It's about giving ourselves away. Why? Because Jesus has already given us everything that we need. Listen to the way Paul says it. Uh, he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a phrase in Greek that's used for politicians. That's a big shock, right? Uh, politicians who are trying to amass a following. And, and what he says is, you don't need to do that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vacancy. Why? You don't need a following. Jesus already loves you. You don't need to prove yourself to anybody. You've already been proven to by Jesus himself. He's already loved you fully and completely. If you're staring fully into the love of Jesus, you don't need to get everybody on your side. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility, 
Count others more significant than yourselves. So model Jesus in the way that he was humble by yourselves being humble. How many of you drove in here today and in your mind you were thinking like, wow, I get to be with those people today. Like I, I was just like, I was driving in and I thought like, I might see Ellen this morning. Like how great would that be? I might see Zach. Like, wow, how did I get to be in the same room as Zach? That's amazing. Like I, I'm gonna go in and I might have an opportunity to have a conversation with Heidi today. Like, wow, that's amazing. That's what Paul's saying. As, as silly as that sounds, he's saying we, we look up to everyone. That, that we come in in humility recognizing, wow, I don't know how I got to be a part of such a wonderful group of people, but man, I, I thank God that I am. It's so good that I get to be here with these people. That in humility, view others as better than yourself. And then Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. What Paul says is, when I come in, if I'm really looking upward at all of you and I'm seeing how wonderful it is to be a part of this community, one of the first things I'm going to do is say, how can I help? What, what can I do? What needs do you have that I can meet? I, I'm not nearly as concerned about my own needs and desires and preferences as I am about what needs you have. So, um, the clearest example of this, of course, Paul will go on to say is the cross. Jesus giving himself up fully for our needs, rejecting his own comfort for the sake of what we needed. But the penultimate is found in John chapter 13. We're going to look there in a couple weeks in a lot more detail. But if you're familiar with John chapter 13, the disciples are gathering in what will become the Last Supper. They don't know that at the time, of course. They're just gathering for the Passover meal. And as they're gathering for the Passover meal, they all walk in with dirty feet. Their feet are nasty. And their feet are nasty, I'm going to try to um, say this kindly, um, car pollution is bad for the environment, camel pollution is bad for your feet, right? Everybody get what I'm saying here? So they're walking miles on dirt roads following after camels, and so what is caked onto their feet is wrong, like it is nasty. And so the very lowest servant would be the one who would wash feet because ain't nobody want to touch that, right? Like that's, ooh, stay away from that. And so they come in and they're all sitting there, they all have dirty feet and they feel it, but they're kind of leaning in there, kind of hiding their feet behind them because nobody wants to be the one called upon to go wash the feet because not only is it nasty, but it would signal that they're the lowest. And if you know the story, Jesus, of course, sees this and stands up and takes off his outer garment and pours the water and begins to go from disciple to disciple washing feet. Now, why did he do it? There's all kinds of answers to that question. We're going to explore it more in a couple weeks. But, but I, I think there's a, a simple answer to it. I, I don't think Jesus did it because he had to. And I don't think Jesus did it because it was his spiritual gift. I don't think he was like better at getting between the toes than the rest of them. You know, I, I, I don't think that was it. I think Jesus washed their feet because their feet were dirty and they needed to be washed. It's that simple. Jesus looked at the situation and said the needs that these guys have is that someone would wash their feet. I can do that. And so he did. What does it look like to consider others better than yourself and to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Well, 
maybe the clearest example, and I'm going to say this, and I, I promise you I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to give you an example. The clearest way I can say it is a church that looks not to its own interest, but to the interest of others, never struggles to fill a children's ministry schedule. Just the way it is. Why? Because the weakest among us, the ones who can't care for themselves, need to be cared for. And if I'm looking to not my own interests, but to the interests of others, I'm saying, I can do that. I would love for all of our classes to have a dedicated teacher that starts in September and serves through May. I mean, it's great. Lucinda, maybe, I don't know if she said it last night or said it this morning. It's true. If you can only serve once a semester, that's great. We'll take you. Uh, That's true. But I would really love it for our kids if they would know every week, that's my teacher. And And they care about me. And they go on vacation now and then, but for the most part, they're my teacher. They're the ones who are always there. I'd love that. Why doesn't that happen? Well, because, you know, I'm already here for the 8.30, and the 10.30 is like, that goes till noon, and I got lunch plans, right? That's stuff. I come last night on Saturday night on purpose because I don't want to come on Sunday morning. That's the whole reason I come on Saturday night, right? I come to the 10.30 because it's way more exciting than the 8.30. Sorry, people just say that stuff. I don't know, whatever. But... <laughs> I keep telling them, if 20 of y'all move from the 10.30 to the 8.30, the 8.30 will get more exciting. That's the way it works, right? But see, here's the thing. Like, and, and again, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just simply saying that that's, that's the clear expression of seeing others as more important than myself. Uh, what are the foot-washing things at a church like your clients? Well, certainly children's ministry. Um, greeting uh, in the humidity and in the cold and in the rain and in the nasty, like that's, that's, a, that's a foot washing thing. Uh, cleaning toilets is quite literally, a, a, I mean, there's a lot of parallels we're not going to go into, um, but uh, that's, that's a foot washing thing, being part of those schedules who, who vacuum and clean and mow and all of the stuff that they do. Uh, that's, that's part of foot washing. The idea is that we would see the needs of the world around us, the people around us, as more important than our own. And Jesus calls us into living like that, not as a coercion, not as guilt, not as force, but as a loving invitation to redirect our privilege and to embrace sacrifice. Back in 1970, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, and um, Francis Schaeffer, if you're not familiar with him, understood culture at his time in a way um, that was almost prophetic as he looked forward. And um, as Francis Shaver wrote in 1970, he said that the influence in the church in the West and specifically the church in America will wane. And the reason is because the church will be willing, listen to this, to side with political elites, regardless of whether they're on the left or the right, in order to retain comfort affluence, and personal peace. 1970. That's happening. But what Paul's saying is it doesn't have to happen. We get to choose. As people who follow Jesus, we are invited to look into the love of Jesus and choose what we're going to do with what we've been given. We're not forced, but we're invited. We don't have to prioritize comfort and affluence and personal peace over serving others through the gospel. We get to choose. 
And so I want to invite you into what I believe Paul says really clearly is the way of Jesus, which is prioritizing sacrifice over privilege. And as we do that, I recognize that we're all in different places and we're all hearing this in different ways. And so um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come and and they're going to lead us in a response. But as they lead us in that response, I just want to take a minute of silence to allow the Spirit to speak to you. Because just like I come as a white, well-educated, middle-class man, um, I see privilege a certain way. You have experienced all that the gospel has said to you in a certain way. And so I want to allow the Spirit to speak that to your situation right where you are. And then for us to walk into what Jesus has for us. So would you just kind of quiet yourself, uh, settle your mind and your heart, and allow the Spirit to speak to you. Jesus, we open ourselves up to you. Would you, by your Spirit, speak words into our hearts, our souls? Direct us. We don't want to be directed by guilt. We don't want to be influenced by uh, passion. We want to instead be led by your spirit. And so help us, as Paul says, to walk in step with your spirit. Just take a minute and listen. Jesus, as we look into your life, your love, your sacrifice for us, we want to be people who respond to your spirit, not to the culture around us, not to the drives that are inside of us, but to your spirit that is changing us, transforming us from the inside out. And so Jesus, would you, by grace, speak to each one of us. Help us to see what it looks like for us to walk this truth out. We love you, Lord. We're so thankful for the way that you have redirected your privilege to give us life. May we do the same in the world around us. In Jesus' name.